Hey, Sam. Hey, Teresa. What's up? Not much. Um, happy to have you in New York. Been a great start to the summer. I've just been, I passed my class. So nice. <laughs> shout out to me for getting a passing grade. And now I've just been enjoying life. How about you? I am enjoying Bushwick, feeling like a local every day. Actually, I feel like People will come at me if I say that. I'm not a local. I study Google Maps to get to the J. But um, I really like the neighborhood and have just been going out around the area and like um, exploring like cafes and stuff during the day and like going on runs in the parks. Good vibes. New York in the summer. Basically my dream life. Um, But yeah, so on today's um, episode, also, oh, wait, wait, I'm going to do it again. What are you doing? But yeah. <laughs> that was the worst transition I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. Said, yeah, so like, life is so daunting. <laughs> <clears throat> so yeah. Okay. Um, after a brief two virgins hiatus, we are back and better than ever. You know, we are stronger than ever. And also crazy because we basically have been putting out an episode every single week since we started without a break. So I feel like this break was needed. Um, But yeah, thank you guys for sticking around. And we're really excited for this week's episode. We will be interviewing Homer Shu over a cup of lavender tea. Great, let's get into it. For this week, we chose lavender tea because Teresa and I actually went to a tea spot yesterday that had a lot of different types of tea, and we both got the lavender. It was pretty delicious. Um, I haven't had a lot of lavender tea, but it was very, like, I don't know how to say it in a way that's, like, polite. It was, like, underwhelming but in a way that felt very relaxing and refreshing. How do you feel? I don't know what your expectations were for lavender flavor, but I feel like it's usually not like super strong. It's more of like an aroma, you know what I mean? Like lavender ice cream is like super subtle. I'm not like, I feel like if lavender flavors were strong, they would taste like eating perfume, which would be gross. Um, so yeah, me and Sam went to Prince Tea House. Shout out. Um, teas were a great price and they had little like outdoor like hubs that have roofs on them, which was good because it started pouring yesterday when we were there. But anyways, mm-hmm. moving on to today's interview, we are so excited to be interviewing Homer Shu, who is an artist based in New York. Um, me and Sam just really love Homer's paintings and like a lot of what struck me about them wasn't only their subjects, which most recently highlight, um, a lot of Asian American identity, but also just kind of their scale and also his artist statement and how he uses, um, his paintings to, really say something about um, Asian American identity as well as um, race and um, in America. 
yeah, really beautiful paintings. Um, really cool use of subject, and especially on these new paintings, an incredible use of color and space. They're absolutely huge. Um, and if you're in New York, they're very accessible. The MoCA, where he's shown that, opens um, his paintings in mid-July. So super exciting thing coming up on the calendar. And it's amazing to talk to somebody that's doing such great work. Yeah. And for those of you who don't know Homer, he is an artist um, who earned his BA in visual art from Bard College. He's exhibited paintings um, really around not only the U.S., but around the world. He's exhibited them at the Hyde Park Arts Center, the Silent Barn, Bard College, um, and this month, he is opening his solo show backgrounds um, in Hong Kong, in addition to um, his show Responses, Asian American Voices Resisting the Tide of Racism on July 15th at the Museum of the Chinese in America. Um, so yeah, we're super excited to talk to him. And with that, should we call him up? Yeah, let's call him up, Brenna. Hi, how's it going? Hello, good. How are you? Good, good. Sorry, I'm a little late. Oh my God, no worries. You already had to take the train this morning to where? Uh, this is my studio. So I'm I I don't live where I paint. So this is my studio. Oh, sick. Where's your studio? It's in um, Sunset Park, Brooklyn. We're both in New York as well. So. Oh, okay, cool. Mm -hmm. So in theory, if we were vaxxed, we could have done this in part. Well, we I think I hope you guys are back. Facts, but yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. We could have done this in fun. person. Yeah. yeah, have you guys I ever recorded done person? one in person? But mm. yeah, it would be fun. But yeah, we're super excited to do this. Also, I love what shoe. Yeah, I was like, do you know him, or like, do you just like? Yeah, so painted him. I know. He, I invited him to my first show in 2017, and he came, and he was very nice. About uh and then i painted him after he came to the show and then we talk a little bit he's very very busy mm -hmm. um i guess i'm in his instagram close friends <laughs> uh i get to see more content of his kid but we went on a walk the other day uh just to go over how i should handle my press for my two shows so um and he was very oh, sweet really? about it all wow yeah. but yeah that's such a flex I'm a, such a huge fan. I was like, yeah. wow. No, he's a great writer. Yeah. He's a great writer. I've been he reading like a nice since guy. Grant Land. Really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just loved his writing about hip hop and basketball. And it was just like, who is this guy? You know? I know. Who is this guy that has all these opinions about that? Yeah. And, and Premier League soccer, but I really don't watch Premier League soccer. Not me neither. Yeah, but it'd be worth it's like worth reading just for the way he writes. Um, <laughs> we have like loved just getting the early look at what is going to be on display. Um, I guess our first question was just how does it feel to have an exhibition opening in New York City? Are you excited? Still processing is basically some of it. It's that not that the re reality doesn't normally set in until the work is hung on the wall and like right before people start coming to see it do you start thinking about holy shit it's happening like right now my mode the mode that my brain is totally in is taskmaster do i have enough stuff to clean all my brushes do i like 
how, like what, what color is this corner going to be? Um, so it's a lot of task mastering stuff. And, and I don't really, I feel like I don't give myself time to think on terms like that just because it could psych me out. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's like, um, it's like thinking about being on the metal stand before you've swum your race. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. I can see that. I mean, that's huge. Like to, yeah, just be showing NYC. Um, and just like going into sort of the paintings that you've exhibited, not only in New York, but in Hong Kong, like a lot of them, you know, focus on themes of, um, you know, Asian identity. And I was just wondering, were any of these paintings a response to like the rise in anti-Asian violence of this year? Or have you always been interested in like Asian subjects? So I've been painting Asian subjects since about 2015, 2016. Um, it started mostly as a joke to myself. I was like, well, no, we was doing it. But let me just give it a shot, blah, 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 you know? Uh, and then I had a big confidence boost when I saw Alice, there was an Alice Neal show at David Sperner uh, in 2016. It's called Uptown, where, where if, if you, yeah. Um, and that gave me a boost because I thought she did, she executed it really well. And I was like, wow, if I, only I could do like, maybe half as good as this painting. So let me give it a shot. So then it got a little more serious. Um, I would say in terms of as a response to the violence in Asian American communities this year and throughout the pandemic, the two large paintings are for a show about that. Um, And for me, there was, so I can just show them to you right now. And I I realize that's not gonna appear on the pod, but, they are both of historical events. So this one that you're looking at right now is the murder of Vincent Chin, which happened in 1981 or 82. Somebody fact check me. Uh, and then this is a, just a metaphoric image about the Page Act, uh, which banned Chinese women from coming to America. And so these are things that I mostly become familiar with because I never I went to a college without an Asian American studies program. Um, and it wasn't something that I was strongly interested in uh, from an academic perspective, but just sort of because I figured I knew what it's like to be Asian American, I don't need to study it. But then reading Hua, reading other writers like Jay Caskin Kang, um, uh, uh, Jinyan Fang, uh, they always touch on these subjects. And then also where I've exhibited, am I exhibiting these paintings, the Museum of Chinese in America? There is a long running historical exhibition about this. So. I have thought about it, um, but in terms of responding to what happened this year, there was a plan in my head to do things about, shit, I, I, I don't really know. Like it could have, we, I had like sketches about um, the shootings in Atlanta and the, uh, all the way to the Muslim ban by Trump. Um, and I couldn't, let me put it this way anything before 2015, I'm still processing. Like, I don't know what I can say that would be interesting or even, yeah, especially with what happened in, in Atlanta. I, I feel like I, I don't have the tools to process it yet. Um, and what continues to happen in Chinatown, I don't, I just am reacting. And I don't wanna just take my reactionary feelings and put them in a painting. So that's why I definitely stuck to topics that I felt like 
I could read about and understand in a historical context. And that would contextualize what is going on today. Um, in some ways, I don't feel brave. I feel not brave enough to ta tackle what's happening today, right now. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to also ask, like, I feel like, like, what I guess is the difference for you in terms of like, painting Asian American subjects that like highlight and like celebrate, you know, Asian American people, but then also like, you know, the murder of Vincent Chen is like, definitely so like tragic and like, has so much grief attached to it. And like, is there a difference in like how you approach that emotionally um, through your work? Yeah, I mean, definitely, uh, because everyone else I've painted, well, everyone else who's in the show in Hong Kong, I have had a conversation with, like I, I'm in a verbal dialogue with, and, and we have been in the same physical space too. Uh, Vincent Chin is like, the, the title of the painting is The Passion of Vincent Chin, because in a lot of ways we refract almost like a martyr-like figure out of him, right? Nobody right now, uh, or at least anybody who's talking about really knows him as, a, as an individual. He's just like a, a prism for which we project historical things through. Um, it's a bit un unfair for him, but uh, it is how we processed him. So I was thinking about the, the prism of, the fact that he is a prism and there's so many ways to read what happened to him um, uh, uh, that tells you more about yourself and how much you project than it does about um, who he was. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And I think something unique about um, these works as well is their scale um, and just how striking they are with their, I mean, I know people on the podcast may not be able to see, but they're very, very large works. Is there a reason that you chose to make them this size? And is there any artist that kind of inspired you in creating on this scale? So for the first one, that was almost like that. So the subject of the commission when they came to me with it is, I don't know if you know the parts of Mocha's collection burned down last year um, in a fire in Chinatown. And uh, what they brought to me was like, we are missing some murals. We don't want you to repaint this, the murals that are missing that burnt down, but um, we do believe that we should have mural like objects in our collection. Uh, so we would like to commission you for one. Um, these are the sizes we're thinking. And I was like, well, I've never painted at that size. Well, not since like college. Um, so, uh, and I was like, you know what? I haven't tried this in a long time and I've never tried it in this way. Uh, let me see what I come up with and, and it'll just be a challenge. Both of the compositions in order to make my life easier for myself. So in terms of the compositions, I did not have enough time to make like original compositions in terms of, uh, uh, just dream up whatever you can do. I was like, all right, we should just use kind of a historical painting as a template. So this is um, Gustave Courbet's burial at Bournon. It's a funeral as well. Um, and so I just sort of cribbed the general idea in order to put in the painting. And then um, for the Passion of Vincent Chin, I cribbed my composition from the Night Watch or at least what remains of the Night Watch just because uh, I wanted to know how Rembrandt framed things so that uh, there was like depth and also uh, width. And then the Night Watch are like, they're like vigilantes or cops or, or whatever. I don't know. I don't, I don't really remember reading everything about it, but they're all armed. And so I was like, okay, well then 
that'll tell me something about how how I want to deal with the vintage in painting. Yeah. So that, that's like the historical one. In terms of like the the figures, I don't know. I looked at like a bunch of Neo Rausch paintings. He's like a German painter that's still active right now. Um, he has just like really weird weird paintings, but I did look at him for a sense of atmosphere, I guess is the best way to put it. And I guess you've talked a little bit already about your artistic process, but how long did it take you to go from the draft stage to the completed work? And is that process always consistent for you or does it depend on the work you're creating? So I'll start with the last, it's super inconsistent. Like the, the painting up here of uh, Charlie Mai, he started the painting maybe in January and I did not finish it till April, but it was just a slog. I would do a little bit of it and then kind of stop and then be like, I don't know, um, come back to it. And then I kind of did like five straight days of it right before my works were getting shipped off to Hong Kong um, so that I'd have like some clear space in my studio. And then that that's what finished it. But these, I knew that I just had to keep working. Like I was on a deadline, they, they have to be shipped out on the 8th of July. Um, so yeah, it's been really steady. Basically I'll, I'll work mostly all weekend. And then I'll give myself like a, a weekend in the middle of the week just to decompress from them. But they've been steady since I started. The, I got the canvases May, 18th they were like ready to paint on on the 18th and so it's june 27th today so yeah kind of just like constant work yeah and we also kind of wanted to ask about um the series description that says like the paintings go beyond a time of intensified racial conflict and pertain instead to contemporary human conditions in general how do you envision a time beyond racial conflict you know like visually and like conceptually so a time beyond racial conflict. So the, I guess like that's sort of like the dream of having a utopian society, right? Like there, there will be a place where if we work hard enough, we'll have a future where people coexist um, and, and kind of participate in building a society together. They have, um, there isn't just like what we have is like paper democracy in America. What we want is like, like real democracy where we control not just like who's elected, but also like um, we control our work and like the, our workplaces, like having workplace democracy. So there, it is it is dreamable to live in a place without racial conflict. Um, and, and I don't think we should lose faith in that. Uh, it just requires solidarity and hard work um and and kind of just like undermining the current systems that exist in the world today like things like the fbi and the cia undermine that kind of racial solidarity right so how do we bring down those deep state-sponsored structural mechanisms but also deep corporate structural mechanisms to get to that that world um and i have no promise that the paintings will do anything for that paintings are not that kind of tool you know it's like people organizing together and like abstaining from work um, stopping work, you know, those are the kinds of things that all that we can leverage as workers against, you know, the powers that be, right? So, so I, I have no pretension to believe that the paintings 
will do that. But in some ways, like the paintings are all, all of these paintings were made in a time of great racial tension, right? And, and in ways, you know, it's only a fragment of the racial tension that exists in the world. I, I, I don't make paintings of black and brown people now. Um, there are Asian American black and brown people as well. And they are people that I've actually photographed, but I have not started paintings of. But um, uh, I don't in any way imagine that the paintings themselves do the work. It is the people that do work. And um, what was I thinking about that? Um, and in some ways it, they point, so, so that, that phrase that, that my writer worked on, um, in some ways I also even have a counter statement to it. It's like, I would like to live in a world where my paintings are a little bit, my paintings that I've made today are just like a little bit unintelligible to the society of the future, where they don't live in a world with that much racial conflict. So when they look back, they're like, what the fuck was he doing? <laughs> why, was the, why were these necessary? You know, I want people to live in that way, you know? Um, or, or why did they emerge? So like, if it, one of the things that I like to think about is like, there is like gold jewelry from like, uh, the Allens, they were like tribal people in like Northern Ukraine, Macedonia and stuff like that. And they make beautiful jewelry, but like, I think most anthropologists, art historians, sociologists, they have no earthly living idea what they were used for. Like they basically can just say ritual, right? I want my paintings to kind of be like that. Like our society will change, transform so much that they're not quite intelligible in that way. They're just like objects that are kind of pretty, you know? Um, that's how much I want society to change. And it's, it's kind of like I've created a watermarker of where it is now, as far as I can see it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an incredible goal and hopefully we do get there. But part of what you talk about in backgrounds is about trying to move away from the typical characterization of Asian faces. And so could you talk a little bit about how you feel these paintings combat that? Sure. So um, one of the things that I find with Asians in culture, in American culture, Western culture, uh, is that they are projected into the future. Like Blade Runner is a very good example where none of the protagonists are in, but there are Asians and Asian symbology all around you in, in the Blade Runner future, 2046, 20 whatever which is only kind of two decades from now, right? And so in a way, uh, the, the, the way people talk about it, it's like there will always, that there's an Afrofuturist statement of like, there will be black people in the future because there are black people in the past. But I would say uh, the way white culture has framed it is like, there'll always be Asian people in the future. And that's because the future is exotic and they're exotic in the same ways that Asians are exotic to us now, right? The future ex is exotic to the present. Um, and what I wanted to do was bring people into the present um, so that it kind of de-exoticizes them. So all the paintings of not this series, this, this historical one, are in the context of the here and now, right? The, you can kind of see the backgrounds that everybody is standing in and they should be familiar in the sense that like, oh, this looks like our modern life or contemporary life, whatever world we're in and and therefore are less exotic yeah no that was really um well said and i can definitely see that from the um, paintings and i guess we're also wondering um just like growing up in chicago and i guess now you're in new york but how did like growing up in chicago influence your style 
just like in general, if it did. So, so growing up in Chicago is very interesting. I think you two will both know this, is that like Chicago is, the segregation in Chicago is so straightforwardly intense, right? The South side is black, the West side is Latino, and uh, uh, the North side is white, right? Like that's the generalization you can make very clearly. And uh, in many ways, it kind of holds up. So, so there are like three areas that kind of interact with each other. And it's, it's, a, it's not, not Dickens' tale of two cities, it's a tale of three cities in a lot of ways. And then Chinatown is like this tiny sliver, right? And um, it also interacts kind of autonomously by itself, right? Whereas in contrast, in, Amer in New York, everything is happening all at once. There's no enclave uh, in the same way, right? Even though Chinatown exists, it intersects with um, various other neighborhoods and the, the, the boundaries are a lot more fluid, right? And that doesn't mean that racism, segregation doesn't exist in New York, right? Um, it, it, it's still, uh, it's still, the people who are impoverished are still the same people who are impoverished in Chicago. But um, the way Chicago, I guess, influenced me is sort of as a contrasting point to the way New York exists uh, and, and in this work. I, I would say that I very much enjoyed growing up in Chicago, um, but I also, I'm living in Hyde Park, it's kind of like living in a fantasy land. Yeah, shoot, I, I don't, I, it's super hard to say how, how, how that influenced the paintings. Um, I guess sort of it's like I arrived in New York and I'm like, oh, uh, Chinatown is Mecca, right? It's like, it's the way Madison Square Garden is to basketball, Chinatown in Manhattan is to Asian American life. It may not even be the, like the best place to eat Chinese food in New York, right? But it is. It has this like aura around it, um, and I guess like uh, being there and being around it really made me want to start making those paintings that I started in 2015. I was like, oh, I, I, I guess I see myself um, refracted in in this neighborhood and 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 the different ways it exists. And that that's also true of the the Chinatown that's like a couple blocks over that way. In Sunset Park. Yeah, and have you seen your work changing much recently? Like, do you see some of the newer paintings as being more emblematic of where you're going with your work in the future? Or do you still feel like um, you're going to continue a lot of your older work as well? I would say every painting after each other, they kind of tell me what I'm going to do next. And in a lot of ways, uh, they can if there's a big change from one to another, it's because they kind of pushed me to do the next one in a, in a different way. Either I was dissatisfied with what happened in the first, the last one, or not dissatisfied, or I was like, how can I approach this differently? I guess the best way to say it is these two mural size paintings, what they're telling me right now is that Homer, you have to paint even more directly than you do. like choose exactly the color you want there to be in the end on there. Um, you should have even less underpainting than you ever did before. Um, so it changes in that way. In terms of subject matter, um, I have all these other people that have already sat for painting 
instance, uh, I have their photographs and a little bit of drawing as well. So I kind of know, I have a roadmap to what I want to do. And I do see that, those paintings as kind of a, a lifelong project. Like it's weird to be like 30 and make a commitment like that, but it's, it also, it doesn't feel like I'm too young to make that commitment either. It's like, I would, I plan on keeping, exploring the same territory for a long time. And if I do get more time, I will find other things that are like topically adjacent to it to explore maybe in sculpture or um, other way. No, definitely seeing some of this in sculpture would be really, really cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah. I, I also just wanted to ask, like, um, I guess, yeah, since you like decided to become an artist, I think for you, like what are the moments that are most fulfilling for you? And what is something that like you did not expect? Like, I guess. Wow. Wow. Um, I think of making the decision to be an artist as a weird kicking the can down the road kind of thing. So I know, Sam, you know my brother and how different my brother is from me. He is like focused and intense and I was not a very good student. I don't know if you ever saw in Brian Wildman's room before they destroyed that and did the new building at lab. I did a self-portrait with my grades on it and uh, Brian's always like, oh, the portrait's fine, but like, it's really brave for you to have such shitty grades hanging up on a painting. <laughs> And so I like was not a great student. And so being making art was like a way of like wrestling with that. Uh, I don't, I wasn't even like the best artist in my class or in any of my like classrooms at lab. Um, and I don't even know if I felt like I was the, the best artist at, in college at all, all either. Um, but it was like something I could do that people had some interest in. I don't dislike academics, but I just like have no way of showing out at it. So it felt good to have something to be good at, ish. Then the, the can get, kept getting kicked down the road, kicked down the road. I did, I went to college and I studied painting as well there. And I had a final show there that went well. And then I moved back to Chicago for a couple of years. And I continued to paint. It, I think what happened then was that like, after leaving school, my drop off from where I felt I was in society to where I ended up was so big. I was like, I got just got to hold on to painting or else I will have no life raft of feeling like remotely grounded after leaving college. So I did that for a while. And then having made the paintings in Chicago, I was like, and I, this had the paintings from in Chicago were not of Asian Americans. And, and I think that's an all maybe really answers the back question from a while back. It's like, I didn't feel in touch with that um, while I was there making these paintings. And then I was like, I just need a change. I need to move to New York uh, and really see if I can make art there. And it is hard to make art in New York. It is really, really expensive. And what I touched on on my email is that like, I don't think I would still be making art if I was still drinking. Because if I was still drinking, it would have been too expensive and I just wouldn't have the time. So like sobriety is kind of one of the things that paired with art. So like being sober gave me enough money to make art and then making art 
keeps me sober sometimes. Yeah. That's, that is so, <laughs> that's so facts. Wow. Being sober partially as like a financial logistical issue. Drinking yeah. It's so expensive yeah. in New York. Oh my. It is so expensive in New York, but also going to the places where you like, it's, it's not even just buying alcohol, right? It's all the decisions after it. it. Oh, I need some really greasy food the next morning. I need to go to the diner. The diner is like 25 bucks because diners are not cheap anywhere, but especially not in New York. Oh, I need to take that Uber home because I cannot deal with the subway. Other expense. Like I, I think in some budgeting tool, it was like alcohol every month, $300. But then like all the other expenses would have just accelerated too. So. Yeah, no, that I mean, I, I'm sure we all feel that. <laughs> but, yeah, a couple. Um, one is, what does it mean to you pre to present your work at Mocha specifically? I don't know. So showing at Mocha for me feels like a matter of friendship. Uh, so Herb, who is the curator at Mocha, and also Andrew, who's also curating the show, um, both of them, they have been really kind to me. Um, and Herb, the painting of Herb is showing in Hong Kong and I am working on a painting of Andrew as well. So it more feels like a, um, it feels like a, uh, it doesn't feel like a, um, I don't know, some sort of like anonymous thing. It feels like paintings I made in a conversation with some friends. There's a lab grad who is uh, also, an intern for the show. Her name is Sophia. I forgot what her last name is, um, but they, she is also um, uh, working on the show and doing a lot of the history for it. So I think it's fantastic. These lab connections. <laughs> I know, I know. I didn't even know about this one. Um, uh, and and she, I wouldn't have really learned, but she brought it up to Mr. Wildman again. And Mr. Wildman texted me, he's like, Oh my God, congrats. I was like, how do you know? I, I haven't told anyone about this. And that's how it all circles around. I love that. Um, and so our last question would just be like, where people can see your work and when, but then also unrelated follow-up was just um, about the drink that you mentioned in the email. I was just wondering if you could like talk more about it. Oh yeah. It seemed very specific. <laughs> so this is Erdinger Vice. Um, when I, so... There's a very quick or long, I don't know, long or quick story. It's a lot of years long. My friends and I, we always used to go to this German beer hall in Fort Greene called DSK. And we would drink like big steins of beer there. Uh, it was one of the few places I think before I was 21, I didn't, I wasn't carted there often. Um, so we would just go and have beer and eat sausages. And it was just a really pleasant beer garden, not beer hall, because uh, there's a lot, a lot of outdoor space. And then when I sobered up, I was kind of like sad because I really liked the space. But then I didn't realize in Germany, just non-alcoholic beer is extremely popular too. So they had it on the menu. So this was like, I, I never pictured myself as being like an O'Doul's kind of person. Like that that to me is like big grandpa energy, right? Like, you know, grandpa has to quit drinking, blah, blah, blah. Um, but this stuff, I, I don't know. I just have had a connection to it since I've been sober. Um, it is... I. It is like um, both delicious, but uh, the fact that I learned that it's like being used as an energy drink by German athletes, I'm like, oh, that's that's nice. So that's that, that's about that. Um, 
in terms of uh, seeing things for the show. So opening at the Museum of the Chinese in America, MOCA, uh, on July 15th. And I think that's at 215 Center Street or maybe 245 Center Street uh, in Manhattan. It is called uh, Responses, Asian American Voices Resisting the Tide of Racism. And uh, yeah, that'll be open till the middle of September. And then if you are in Hong Kong, um, you can go see my show Backgrounds at Edward Mulling Gallery, Aberdeen. So it's Edward Mulling Gallery, Unit 2B, 12th floor, Blue Box Factory Building, Aberdeen, Hong Kong. And that will be open from, the opening is on July 17th. I don't know what time exactly, but, but I think last time they did the opening on a Saturday, it started at like 2 p.m. and ended at 6. Um, but then otherwise it is open till August 26th. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Two Versions. We hope you enjoy getting to know Homer and check out his art. You can find this episode on our website, quarantinecontent.com or on our weekly newsletter, The Cube. See you next week.